Welcome to Climify, the podcast that connects climate scientists and design educators together so that we can help combat our climate crisis in our classrooms. The discussions on this program are geared to help you climify your syllabi to assign projects that not only teach design fundamentals, but also can have a positive impact on our climate. This episode is brought to you by Renourish. Renourish is your one-stop online resource for sustainable design and systems thinking strategies and tools for the graphic designer. You can learn more about Renourish on their website at re-nourish.org, or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook at Renourish. Welcome to another episode of Climify. I'm Eric Benson, your host this season, as we explore why climate action is lacking in design education and what we can do to help change that. I talk with climate experts from all over the world to help us design educators fight the climate crisis in our classrooms. We could, with a little extra help, graduate a new generation of climate designers who can help make the world a better place for all of us. Sounds crazy, right? How could good typography on a poster or choice of hemp fabric on a shoe make any impact on our climate? The European Commission found that 80% of all the environmental impact happens in the design stage of a project. Furthermore, manufacturing of what we make is the third largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Our abilities to educate about these issues, strategize more responsible outcomes, and influence climate action is vital for the future of our planet. And it all starts in the classroom. I'm also a design educator. I've been teaching and researching sustainable design for 15 years here at the University of Illinois. I quit my corporate career in 2004 to dedicate the rest of my life to solving our climate crisis. So thanks for joining me on this journey to graduate a new generation of climate designers. You can get involved beyond this program at climatedesigners.org edu. On the program today, I'm excited to have two guests that come from the world of science and are part of a really cool uh, company called Norfolk Solar, which helps install uh, solar energy on not only residential homes, but also schools and businesses. Alden Kleantz and Ruth McElroy Amundsen uh, are in charge of Norfolk Solar. And I met them through a friend of mine, actually Alden's husband, who said, these two people would be amazing for your show, and he was right. So a little bit about our guests. Alden received her bachelor's degree in biology from Old Dominion University. She served as a publicly appointed official in the city of Chesapeake for the last decade on multiple environmental committees. She was a member of the Virginia Environmental Justice Collaborative. She has worked as an independent consultant for environmental policy and renewable energy at the state and federal level. She also runs an award-winning design and animation studio with her husband. And, of course, she's the co-founder of Norfolk Solar. The other guest today is Ruth McElroy Amundsen. Ruth received her Bachelor's of Physics from Stanford University and her Master's of Aerospace Engineering from my alma mater, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Outside of Norfolk Solar, Ruth is also a NASA thermal engineer. She's helped many businesses, nonprofits, and residential homes install solar panels on their roofs. One of her biggest solar arrays was in Hampton Roads. It's 700 kilowatts of solar right on Norfolk Academy's roof. She gave many presentations over the years on financing solar and has made several zero-interest loans herself for installing solar panels. She's also presented all over to many other nonprofits to show them the way that they can install solar at no cost to their institution. Well, uh, it's wonderful to meet you both, Ruth and Alden. It's my first time on this podcast interviewing two people at once. And so uh, we talked a little bit before the show and we kind of went through what could potentially happen with to an extra person on the show. And I think it's going to be fine. I'm actually really excited to talk to both of you at the same time uh, because of what you do, uh, Norfolk Solar, 
and what you do in general for the climate. So why don't we start there? Let's get to know you. Can you share uh, maybe with Ruth, if you could start, uh, what do we need to know about you? Uh, who are you? How did you get to where you are? And maybe a little bit more about what you do at Norfolk Solar. Great. Thanks. And thanks for having us here. Probably. So my day job is I'm an engineer with NASA. And so I took a normal academic path to get there. But the reason I'm on this podcast is that I run several LLCs that um, put solar on homes and businesses in marginalized and low wealth neighborhoods here in Hampton Roads, Virginia. And um, I got into that with sort of a, a circuitous path of putting solar on my house and learning things about it and learning about the financing and teaming up with Alden and starting these LLCs that do solar and also um, do workforce development in those marginalized neighborhoods. So really proud of that work and really happy to do it. Well, you're my first NASA scientist as well on, on the show. So. <laughs> I have a, a bumper sticker first. that says, yes, I am a rocket scientist. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it, it's a really interesting path that you had to get to where you are. And I want to know more about that in a minute. But Alden, can you tell me a little bit about, about yourself and, and what, you, what brought you to what you're doing right now? Uh, sure. Mine was a little more twisted and curvy. I went to school um, and studied in wetland ecology. Out of college, I became a, a publicly appointed official and started working on state and federal policy around climate change and renewable energy issues. And then in a downturn, sort of like wasn't working any contracts at the time, Ruth found me and said she had this great idea to do solar and wanted someone to sort of help her run the business in the PR side. And I was more than excited to join her. Ruth, how did you find her? Were you uh, uh, snooping on the internet or what? what was <laughs> so <that? laughs> we had met, I think at several different events. We're both part of a lot of environmental groups. So I'd, I'd probably met her at different times, but I actually had started up this fund when I was not working. And then once I went back to work, I didn't have time to run it. And so I just put feelers out with several of my friends that are kind of in the environmental network. And someone said, well, you should try Alden. And I was like that she'd be great. But I thought she was 100% or more than 100% fully employed. And they said, no, right now she's got a gap. So, so I sent her an email, you know, kind of a, hey, just wondering if you have time. And she called me back about 10 minutes later. And we just had this great hour long phone call full of ideas. And anyway, it's been very fun working together. And, and can you both tell me more about this business you're a part of? Um, I know you kind of, in the beginning, Ruth said a little bit about it, but what, what's your main mission? Like, what do you want to accomplish? So my main mission is to translate private wealth that exists in the U.S. into solar on low-income homes and businesses and, and leverage the private wealth to reduce the energy burden of um, low-income folks. And the way you do that, and, and part of the route for how I got here was I, I um, did this on my kid's school. I got a group of parents together and we financed the solar on the school and all the parents get our money back in seven years and the school gets the solar at no cost. And after I saw that work, I thought, well, this could be much more extensive than just doing a private school. And um, there's some Trump tax law that, uh, that allows you to take more financial benefit by using capital gains and investing it in these low-income areas that are called qualified opportunity zones. And so that's what we do is we take my money and investors' money and we directly install solar on businesses and homes that are in low-income areas. Um, we get part of the install cost paid off with tax credits and the other part is paid off by the, the site paying me for the solar or paying the investor via what's called a power purchase agreement. So they're basically paying for the electricity they're getting from the sun, and they're paying for that out of the saving or utility bill. So it's always no cost to the entity that's getting it, whether they're a home or a business. And then after it's paid off, which takes around seven to 10 years, they own the solar. And so from then on, they just have low utility bills, um, and they never had to actually outlay the capital for it. Wow, that, that sounds amazing. And you've had a bunch of success stories 
I've seen on yeah. your website. Um, yeah. Are there any so we did, that, that really stand out to you? Uh, well, I think the most fun was doing the Wesley Union AME Zion Church. It was also the most stress. They came <laughs> to us and, and uh, wanted solar and their roof faces east west so it was not going to be a perfect install mm -hmm. and then their roof was too old and then the city didn't have any paperwork on their site because they're a very old church and it's before they were keeping electronic records anyway a lot of um hoops to jump through we finally ended up doing a ground mount there because the roof was just not suitable but once we got it in the pastor there is an amazingly engaged, passionate guy. He put us on their Facebook page. He had a ribbon cutting where all these politicians came. He is very much a voice for change and mentions us all the time and tells other people they need to do solar. He's eyeing the spare lot next door for community solar. I mean, he is all in and he's very, very outgoing and, and social and just been a joy to work with. So you helped him have an epiphany, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's been great to see, you know, like it's a small African-American church with a, you know, kind of aging um, population of congregants. And then we brought in the, for this ribbon cutting, all these local politicians came. And so it was a really interesting mixture of people at the ribbon cutting, you know, with this kind of older African-American population, you know, meeting some of their local politicians and, and mixing together and seeing that they could benefit each other um, so yeah, that's been probably the most, most fun one, even though it's not maybe the most impact because it's a very small install. Well, speaking of epiphanies, I want to turn to Alden for a second. And uh, everyone that I've spoken with on, on this program has had, you said you had a kind of a twist and turny path to where you are. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what about that journey brought you to working on solar and uh, being a positive force to uh, fight against our climate crisis, you know, was there a moment that that kind of stirred you or was it just kind of a general evolution or, or something else? I'm intrigued by this because everyone seems to have a really interesting story. Uh, well, it's interesting. Um, my grandmother was always very involved in politics and she helped to raise me. One of sort of our family heirlooms that we have in the house is a signed picture from John Kennedy, thanking her for helping him win Virginia. Um, so I was taught from a very young age that being part of being a good citizen is being involved at every level. It's not just voting, but it's serving your community, speaking to your politicians, being involved in the process, understanding the way that things work and helping to be a liaison for education, not necessarily judging someone who runs for office one way or the other, but helping them make the most informed decisions and working on renewable policy for so long and then pairing with Ruth and actually getting in the ground and installing it. I myself didn't even know what I didn't know. So how could I expect the people writing policy to know these things, right? right? So it's just another step in the like, the more educated you are, the better you can help advise other people, the better the policy gets. But specifically getting into environmental justice, um, I wasn't really aware of the issues and the things going on around environmental justice and clean water and clean air issues until after I had my son. And um, when he was nine months old, our water at our home was contaminated hmm. and he developed pancreatitis and spent a week in the ICU. And um, yeah, I sort of became a lot more aware and personally impacted of these issues. And it just sort of ramped up that passion of, it doesn't matter if I'm getting paid now or not. This is where my heart is. This wow. is where the work's going to be because I don't want anyone else to have to go through this. Yeah, no kidding. Um, does it, it, it did sound a little bit uh, like you have an interest in politics. Is that is that in your future, you think? <laughs> no, not not as being a politician, but I will always be in service. So um, I do a lot of volunteer publicly appointed official positions, and I do a lot of um, both paid and unpaid advising. I sort of have developed the um, reputation to be someone that's a straight shooter mm -hmm. and that doesn't talk about it after the fact, right? So I have <laughs> yeah. politicians on both sides who will call me and be like, hey, I just really don't know where to go here or what this means. And I'll have a very frank moderate conversation and what decision they make is what decision they make and no one outside of me and then we'll know that we talk. 
Well, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing that because you could be definitely making some big changes in your area and hopefully the state. For sure, we have. Good. Yeah, Ruth, uh, same question to you. I imagine being a, a NASA scientist, you've you've come across a lot of things along your way that has inspired you, but were, were there some, some moments in your life um, that brought you to where you were? I don't know that I've had as much an epiphany. It's more kind of been baby steps. Um, I've always done a lot of reading on the environment and I've always been passionate about it. And my mother was passionate about it as well. Um, and I kind of thought, well, I'll do it at some point, but we live in a 1928 house. It's going to be too hard to do solar. It was always one of those things that you kind of push off. And then as part of a project at my kid's school, we put a small amount of solar up on the school just to make one event net zero energy. And it was so incredibly easy. I mean, it was one day in and out and I was like, wait, what, this is how easy it is. And so we put solar on our house and it was that easy. You know, one day it wasn't a problem that it's a 1928 house. It, and then our home was on a solar tour. So I ended up getting a lot more educated about solar because when 40 people come to your house every year and ask you questions, you, you want to know the answers. And, mm -hmm. uh, so I just got more and more involved in it and saw like, you know, when you see the sun shining on your house and then you look at the power meter and you know, you're making power, it's just such a direct satisfaction. And um, so then that was when I got involved in putting it on our kids uh, school and, um, and started up the rest of it. But it, it really all came from just seeing that it's, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Yeah, I'm, I'm really inspired by the, the work that both of you have done at the, with, with your solar work in particular. Um, my home, covered by trees, I, I'd have to cut them down, according to the uh, solar company, to put solar on the roof. So I've paused that. Uh, I really do want solar on my roof. Um, but after you started talking about schools, it's gotten me really motivated to um, do something similar. So I'm interested in like how, I'm a father, I have a daughter who's now going to, into, she's in seventh grade. So um, I'm really interested in how, as just as a parent who believes in the same causes you two do, what could someone like me do to help get solar on the schools in my community or in any community? So I think a lot of it is just letting the schools know how easy it is, kind of like my epiphany. Um, we just talked to our local public school uh, chief of operations, and he didn't really know that there's a state RFP request for proposal that any public school in the state can use. They just send it out and say, we want proposals for putting solar on the following schools. And there are many companies like Secure Futures, Solar City. It's probably many national and several local companies that will bid on that. Mm -hmm. And they will all be no cost to the school. Wow. And the way they do that on the back end is kind of the same way we're doing, well, we did the kids school and that we're doing Norfolk Solar. That installer is, is owning the array and taking the tax credits. This is all behind the scenes. You're not wow. having to deal with any of that. And then the school is paying them for the solar um, during the period that the financer owns it. But because they're larger companies that do this, they will almost always have a longer period of time. Like they'll have it last for 20 years. But during that time, they'll charge the school less for the electricity than they're paying right now. So the school gets a financial benefit from day mm -hmm. one. They start paying a lower power bill. And and there's no cost and no work to them. They send out this RFP that's a general one. They get proposals. They pick one. They have a power purchase agreement with that installer that's already crafted. At least in Virginia, there's one statewide that they could ride. And, um, and there's just so many benefits besides cutting the um, utility bill. You have the great advantage of all these kids getting hands-on um, experience with renewable at that tender age of middle school and high school. Right. So they can see this burgeoning field and it cuts the air conditioning bill for the school. If it's on the roof, it's it's taking up the solar energy instead of letting it get inside and it extends your roof life. 
um, and it cuts the carbon for the community. I mean, it just has a whole host of benefits and a lot of schools don't know about it. Um, so things you can do are go speak at your school board meeting and say, did you know this is a possibility? Um, hmm. There's two great nonprofits that have a lot of resources. One's called Generation 180 and one's called Solar United Neighbors. And both of those have reports and case studies showing how easy it can be and contacts for schools that have done it. Um, so I think a lot of it is just, is just education. It's educating your school board that it's possibility, educating your city council um, and, and parents and faculty and the school administration as well to show them this is not some crazy tree hugger idea. This is something right. that thousands of schools across the country have done and taken advantage of to cut their power bills. So basically it's essentially free. Yes. Uh, makes the building more energy efficient with the solar on the roof and educational opportunities and more cost savings for installing the solar from less energy bills. How come more schools haven't done this? It just boggles my mind. I think a lot of it is a, is a comfort issue. It's, it's not what a school has traditionally done. Right. You know, that they're very established usually. Um, and, and sometimes it's an issue that the school building is old and so they would need a new roof to do it, that the mm -hmm. roof was gonna have to be replaced anyway. Um, but I think a lot of it is just people not understanding how easy it can be. A lot of people still have an attitude from the 70s. Solar is not very reliable. It's these cheap aluminum panels. It's really hard to do. It's expensive. Um, and they aren't like up to speed with today's technology. I don't know, uh, Alden, you might have opinions about why, why some of them don't do it. And no, no, you hit the nail right on the head. It's mostly an education problem as everything else is. It, they don't know hmm. what they don't know. So as and, a designer, this is something that um, we can be, not just a father, but as a father who's a designer, visually communicating, uh, this is something that I could play a, a big role in potentially based on just educating, delivering a message. Yes, exactly. And I think part of the problem is the utilities have no incentive to educate the schools or really any of the anybody because they want to sell more of their product, which is electricity. Right. So the utility is not going to come in and tell you, hey, by the way, did you know you could cut your electricity bill by a factor of two? They just have no incentive to do that. Um, so it's dependent on the people that do know about solar to try to get the word out there. I wonder if it's also like a little bit of what my father always told me is that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> this sounds like way too good to be true, but. That's a lot. That's a lot of what it is, especially with the way that we run our program. One of our hardest lifts is convincing the community that no one's taking them for a ride because right. it's win, win, win <laughs> for everybody. So they want to know where the catch is. How do you eliminate that fear or that, uh, you know, trepidation of like, you guys are just going to con me? I think oh. a lot of it is the word of mouth. Like when I, we're going out, I'll take the newspaper articles that show that we're not crazy people and we're not scammers. <laughs> and I have, we've asked all of our installs if they're willing and we give out their phone numbers. So we'll give wow. out the phone numbers for the last eight installs we've done to say here, I know it sounds too good to be true, but here's the last eight people that did it and give them a call and, and ask them how it is, ask them how you like us and, and how it worked for them and all that. So, um, you know, it, you really have to, they have to have some personal reason to trust you and giving them and even letting them go see a site that was done. And the same thing for schools, you know, if a school can call some another school and say, Hey, we heard you put in solar, how did it go? Um, that, that mm -hmm. goes a long way toward giving you that trust. But our, our first site was the hardest, right? We worked the hardest to get the first one to be the, to be the guinea pig essentially. And we were, lucky enough that we ran into someone who has a hundred year old local roofing company and he was interested in solar for a very long time and actually partners with a lot of solar companies to do work. So he knew what he was talking about when he sat down to the table with us, which made him a lot less trepidatious when we walked through the process. Mm -hmm. And he got such good press around being the first one to sign up. It was really cool. He had um, installed slightly more solar than he was currently using, but he had already had two electric vehicles, I believe, or two, he had two, and he was interested wow. in switching his whole fleet 
to electric vehicles, which is why he wanted a little more usage. And when the press came out around him doing this, signing up, being the first site, someone from Northern Virginia called him and said, hey, I saw your article. I saw what you're doing. I love your message. I'm going to send down some of my electric vehicles for you to try out since I know that's your next step. You go ahead and try them out and see how you like them. And it was just a snowball effect there. He got all of these great things just around participating in this. So having him as our first advocate was really, really helpful. And one of the reasons he trusted us was that he had actually worked with the solar installer. Um, they were the roofer that did one of the roofs at the school we did. That was my like first effort. And so they knew the solar installer, they'd worked with them and he had kids at that school. So mm -hmm. he had literally seen this installer put up the solar already on a large flat area and, and seen it go up and seen how easy it could be. So he had reasons to trust us as well. I saw one of your other testimonials that you had, and it was about um, a school where there was um, solar put on their roof and they realized some extensive savings in their energy bills and they reinvested. So as a teacher, I was happy to see this. They reinvested that savings into paying their teachers more. Um, that sounds like another win-win situation as well. Yeah, I've seen that. I think it was in one of the Generation 180 reports. That wasn't one of our installs. That wasn't one of that, yours, okay. It wasn't, yeah, but that's just a beautiful story. I will tell you at the school we did, um, within, I would say, three or four months of when we put the solar in, at least five faculty at the school put solar on their own houses. Yeah. Partly because they had the experience and saw that it, how easy it was. But I, I do think that's a beautiful idea to take your savings. And of course, that means that the faculty and, and parents will be very strongly in favor. Right. We had a, we had a person on, on the, the program a couple episodes ago, Katie Patrick, and she talked about how that, what you just described is one of the biggest um, motivators to spread solar as an example of if one person gets it in the neighborhood, it's sort of like a domino effect where they see it and three other people will get it. And it seems like that's what played out in, in that scenario. Yeah, definitely. And, and in fact, I actually lean toward doing buildings where the solar is visible just mm -hmm. for that reason. And the home that we did most recently, um, the owner has been really amazing about doing his own word of mouth. Because people come by and they see the solar on his roof and they're like, hey, how did you get this? And he's like, let me tell you about the whole program. So <laughs> he's, you know, and he's not, we're not giving him a cut or anything. He's just excited about it and telling all his friends. So, um, you know, it can spread visually like that or just word of mouth from, from happy people who got solar. Well, I'm, I want, and I'm sure you do too, want solar to be more widespread, renewables in general to be more widespread. What changes in, in our current legislation, states, federal, or, or just education do you guys believe need to be done to help stimulate more solar and more renewables throughout the country, throughout the world? Well, one that's really in the weeds has to do with tax law. And um, when you have a group like the group that we use to put solar on the school, it's what's called a multi-member LLC. And when you take the tax credits, you have to take it against passive income. And a lot of people don't have passive income. So it limits the group of people that can do that. And similarly, if someone that's low income puts solar on their house, a lot of times they might not pay federal taxes. So getting a tax credit is not useful for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think one great change that's been proposed is to do the solar credit as a direct payment. It's the same amount of money from the government, but it just widens the pool of people who can take it. Um, so I think that would be a, a really great, you know, small change in tax law, but something that could really help spread it. Um, other than that, I think as far as education, um, making sure that these nonprofit groups like Generation 180, make sure their materials are getting out in local high schools and colleges. Um, and I even think having you know, some kind of education at a national level. You know, when you go into your public library, they have flyers up about here's when your taxes are due and, mm -hmm. you know, here's the food pyramid. Um, so people see that kind of stuff all the time. But having some national program where those flyers are also developed to say, hey, 
did you know how much benefit solar could have for you and having those flyers up in every public place so people just see them all the time. One of the other things we work on very quietly in the background is that there's really no federal framework around solar renewable policy. Um, it changes from state to state, which has kept us from proliferating our model outside of Virginia. And we've been asked a lot um, to work on projects outside of Virginia, but the laws vary so much from state to state. That's just, you, you need a whole new set of lawyers, a whole new set of policy specialists to duplicate this process somewhere else. So I think having a federal framework would make it a lot easier. Um, and one of the other things that we talk about too is that there's no requirement specifically in Virginia, but in a lot of other states as well for the utility to buy back any surplus energy, which is a missed opportunity to create passive income, right? If someone, if someone is able to invest in their home and invest in renewable energy and invest in this infrastructure, they should have the right to put up as much solar as they can feasibly do on their roof and create sort of a passive income that helps to stabilize the grid and feeds back energy. But a lot of states like ours don't have a requirement for you to be paid for that. And in fact, don't allow you to even do it anyway, even though there's not a requirement to be paid, you're still not allowed to do it. So there's a couple of different things there, legislative policy-wise that could change. I will say when we first started, Virginia was rated 43rd in the nation for solar mm -hmm. policy. And now we're 17th. Oh, good. I don't think I don't think we're <laughs> entirely responsible for that, but we did do a lot of heavy lifts when we were paused in our work. We got a lot of um, very in-your-face press saying, "Hey, I have investors right now who have millions of dollars who want to put it in solar in Virginia, and we can't work because of the laws you wrote." Jeez. <laughs> so I think that helped. Yeah, I think you two are solely responsible for this. I think it's. Uh... <laughs> Well, this definitely is a good not, time. but we'll take a little credit. You got just a little credit. Okay. You got to, because that, that's a pretty amazing story. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I live in Illinois, so I'm wondering like, how good is Illinois? I know Illinois passed a pretty progressive renewable energy law recently. I saw it written up in Sierra Club and a number of other things, but I, I don't know how we compare to Virginia, Ho hopefully along the same lines or, or better. Uh, but now's a good time, I think, for a commercial break, and, and we'll be right back with uh, a couple more questions. Where do young designers see themselves at the intersection of climate change and innovation? And how can we teach that intersection in the classroom? Designers are problem solvers, capable of imagining solutions for a more sustainable future. We have a bigger role to play in all phases of the design process, not just the beginning. My name is Rachel Cifarelli, graphic designer, recent college grad, and part of the Climate Designers EDU team. And after graduating, I realized today's classrooms tend to skip over that universal side of design. So if you're a design educator, I want to hear from your students. Help set in motion the first ever project that centers students at the intersection of design education and climate change. I want to know what your students think about sustainable design, how they see climate change impacting their future careers, and what even comes to mind when they hear the term climate design. Send your students to climatedesigners.org slash edu slash new wave survey to take the five question survey or sign up for an interview with me. Help me inform a new wave of design education, one that teaches every designer how to be a climate designer. Welcome back. I have a few more questions for you and I, and I want to turn towards the future and then bring it back to my core audience, which are, are typically designers and design educators. So this is, this is a question more about the future. And I don't know how much you know about the current infrastructure bill in, in Washington at the moment, but what are your hopes for that and the hopes for renewables and solar going forward in, in the U.S.? Well, I mean, obviously, I hope that there's ways in it to finance solar. Uh, I would love to see something like a national green bank. I, I mean, I feel like that bill is changing so much day to day. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to track what's in it. Um, but I really think the environmental justice piece where bringing more minorities into the solar workforce is mm -hmm. really important. So having that job training, um, and that's something that, that we did that I thought was a really important piece, um, is that when we write an RFP, we designate with the installer that they have to hire 
um, folks from the opportunity zones and train them as solar installers. So I feel like we've we've led to the first minorities being hired in the solar workforce in this area, and that could be used nationally. Um, that it could be a standard. Um, and I think uh, you know making sure that like we've been talking about the educational materials to make sure that schools know and municipal buildings know that they can they can do this and having the funds available say to do the roof repair so that it is possible to put in solar. Um, and really even besides the infrastructure bill, my, my vision is that we do a much better job leveraging the huge amount of private wealth in this country that exists with people who want to do good with it. And mm. if they knew that they had the option to you know, put it directly into solar investments and get it back in seven to 10 years with a reasonable profit, more of them would do it. And so my view is we'd paper at least Hampton Roads, every school, every low-income home that can would have solar. That's my, my <laughs> vision and hope for the future. Yeah, I'll just piggyback on what Ruth said. Um, I think I said two years ago, almost when we started doing this work, someone had asked me and I said, I'd like to install a hundred million within five years. Um, we're really far from that goal, but I'm still <laughs> hoping we get there. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm thinking about everything you said and, and with the putting um, low income um, and um, disenfranchised members of the community back to work. Is that in the, that's, is that in the infrastructure bill as the civilian climate core? Is that what that is, or is that something different? I, I don't know, but I know that there are a lot of programs that are about environmental justice, mm -hmm. and that includes reducing energy burden for disadvantaged communities and getting them employment in the, these new fields of offshore wind and solar. So I know those programs exist. I don't know if there's funding for them in the, in the infrastructure. Yeah, though. you're right. I mean, I've been reading up on this and, and every week it seems to be different when I look at it. And so I don't know what to think about it, but um, I still have hope. I have, I'm hopeful about it. <laughs> yeah. And my feeling is that solar can be done without investment you know it can be done because it pays for itself uh mm -hmm. we don't need a huge amount of federal money for it i do wish that the federal government would stop giving subsidies and tax breaks to oil gas and coal it seems to me we know we need to get rid of fossil fuels why don't we stop those subsidies and take all that and put it into solar investment like start a, a national green bank that does a revolving loan fund for solar or something like that but um I know that's not in the infrastructure bill. Yeah, but that's, I didn't know what a national green bank was, but that's what it is, right? It, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Why isn't that happening? It doesn't make any sense to me. It's like uh, politics, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I think so. It, it also seemed to, what you said as well, also presented another communications opportunity with, you mentioned uh, private um, wealth in the country and, Invest them investing in uh, solar in particular, um, it does seem like there's some sort of miscommunication or communication not happening so that they can see this as an investment opportunity. Um, is that what you believe what's happening or is it something else? I do think that they just don't know. In fact, I've talked to some local investment advisors to say, hey, if you have an in investor who like me would like to do good things with their money other than just donate it. You know, I think donations to nonprofits are great, but this is a much more concrete way to see your investment actually become something that's doing good on someone's roof. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. so concrete. Um, and so I, I'm hopeful that, you know, as, and we have gotten amazing press, Alden has been great about getting us in the paper. Um, my kids laugh at how often I'm in the paper. Uh, but the more people see that, the more people realize, hey, this is a, a valid way to invest my money. And investment advisors see that and say, so when they have someone, maybe they suggest it as, as an option. Um, I know that there's actually a solar fund coming um, where it would be, but it'd be more like a mutual fund, but it would be a fund that people would invest in and that money would be loaned out for solar installs. But it's a, pro it's a fund that's gonna be listed um, with the SEC, but not 
not the same as a national green bank, but at least it's a start. Well, Alden, Ruth knows this, but I, I'm been communicating with her over email about this. I'm completely all in on this idea of using what I know in the design field to, to get the word out more about, first of all, the solar on schools. Like that just is a no brainer to me. That seems like something everyone should want to see happen. So uh, I'm all in on that. <laughs> um, so uh, back to, um, Back to the, the last couple of questions here. Um, as I mentioned, like most of my listeners are designers, design educators. And as myself, as a design educator, I'm always wondering, you know, all of these things that do affect us just as human beings, right? The, the world around us, um, bringing that kind of conversation into the design classroom is very important, not just to me, but to a lot of design educators out there. And I'm wondering just from, to get your advice uh, in the work that you do is what more can educators do to help um, our students now understand our, our climate issues, um, maybe talk about the, the great things that solar and renewable energies will do for their future um, so that we can um, lead this new next generation into um, a better tomorrow. Wow, so this um, goes really far beyond um, just the climate change conversation, but mm -hmm. I think one of my favorite sayings is to break the wheel. And I feel like we need to acknowledge that the wheel is broken, that we have sort of designed our entire existence with the idea of object permanence. And that's wrong when you live in a variable environment, which climate change has only amplified the reality of. But the reality is that we've always been in a variable environment. So we need to break the wheel of how we have planned every aspect of, of modern life and, and challenge our kids to design something entirely new from the ground up, whether it's that our roads need to encompass both permeability and solar within them and still have some kind of flex so that when you have flooding events, when you have washouts, when you have earthquakes, which Virginia has now experienced in the last 10 years, all of these things that happen, um, we don't lose an entire road or it doesn't have to be maintained at 10 times the cost that it was to lay it in the first place, right? Yeah. One of my favorite images to show is uh, the historical map of the Mississippi River bed. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but if you've never seen no. it, it's this it real... It's this really beautiful image that shows that literally every part of the Mississippi has moved up to a quarter of a mile in each direction through its history. So sort of looking at that with the idea of how do we still sustain our life close to the water and our commercial entities and be aware of the fact that that river is not static and shouldn't be rather than us trying to continue to manipulate the environment to stay where we want it to be how do we find a way to live in cohesion with this natural evolution, which climate change has now become a part of? Oh, definitely. I, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, um, some sort of comparison to the design world. So it would be uh, like, instead of just swapping out the material to make a more sustainable packaging, it's do we need this packaging or do we need this product in the first place? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Ruth, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think she just uh, blew me away with the break the wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she gave me a preview of that when she, she and I were chatting and she blew me away too. <laughs> and I do agree that we're broken. And uh, I've read some really interesting books about entirely new cultural paradigms that we could have to fix that. Um, but I think like pulling back to a, a smaller piece of what we could do in education is, is partly tell kids some of this early on, mm -hmm. you know, education hasn't changed much and the world has changed a lot and what we know about it. I mean, education is still stuck in the, uh, the world is limitless and we're never going to reach the bounds of our resources. Right. So starting really, you know, in elementary school, start talking about packaging, start talking about design, start talking about renewable energy and the differences between renewable energy and fossil fuels and how long it takes to create that oil 
that you're burning in your car? And what are the ways that we make electricity? Like we've left those subjects for technical schools that, you know, are the two-year college kind of thing. We're not teaching it in our elementary and high schools. And I, I think we need to be, we need to be describing the world the way it is to these kids um, so they will come up with ways to change it instead of just teaching them you know reading writing and arithmetic we got to be teaching them some more realities of the world we run an event at my kids school where we make it net zero so we have to compost recycle everything and the things these kids don't know about i mean they literally will hold up an apple and say is this compostable Mm. it's like if you can eat it (laughs) You can compost it because it's going to rot. But they honestly didn't know. I know know college kids that don't know that. So, (laughs) yeah. So I think bringing that kind of information into the classroom um, all the time from an early age. Yeah, I remember, um, I think it must have been second grade. This is when I peaked in mathematics was, I think, in second grade. (laughs) Because I had some like a thing on the wall that I had won some sort of math award, but she was talking about the number zero. The teacher was talking about the number zero in class. And I always remember this because she was talking about the idea of free, like this is free. It's zero, zero dollars. And she was saying, chopping down a tree is free. And I, I raised my hand and I said, how could it be free? How, how is this free? Because I have to buy an axe to chop it down. She's like, well, no, no, someone gave you the axe. No, no, no. I'm like, yeah, but then you have to think about the tree fell down and then you can't look at it anymore. And that doesn't seem free to me. That means it seems negative. And I think she was stumped. And it, I, this is why I say I peaked in math because I realized something at that point about chopping <laughs> down a tree is, is a negative. It's not a, that needs to be taught. You know, it's not that, a tree is an input into the GDP for building a house or building some furniture. It's that it's also a loss at the same time. It's kind of an all the wheels broken. <laughs> yeah. It sounds to me like you were a pretty sharp second grader um, because yeah, to me that gets to the whole problem that we're doing our GDP wrong and we're not accounting for um, loss of natural resources, human happiness, anything mm-hmm. that means anything real about our culture. So the fact that you caught onto that in second grade is pretty impressive. It was all downhill from there, though. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, this, this actually leads into the, the last question I have for you, because um, if the wheel's broken and we actually have this great opportunity in front of us and you were asked, both of you were asked to design, uh, to teach a design class, you could assign anything that you wanted um, along the ideas of, you know, what we're talking about today um, in terms of the climate crisis, uh, environmental issues, what kind of project would you assign? Mm. So Ruth and I were talking about this a little bit, and I sort of had this idea. I, I've worked on solar a lot within the city, and um, I live in a very unique and conservative city that's half mm-hmm. agricultural and half like the largest business um, complex in Hampton Roads, even though we don't get the credit for that. And um, we've recently lost a lot of agricultural land to solar farms. And the farmers um, are, really have a problem with that, right? They see this, that it, it may go unchecked and then we will no longer have an agricultural economy in our city and that's a problem. Mm. So I sort of had the idea of how could we design both in policy and in project a merriment of a solar field with um, low income solar co-ops, right? So imagine an apartment complex or a townhouse complex that now has solar on every square inch of its roof. So it's creating almost as much as a solar field or a solar farm, but it gives both economic freedom to the residents there and surplus into the grid to benefit the energy company. And it's owned by the energy company. So the residents aren't out of pocket, but now they receive free solar energy. We didn't need up any farmland. And how do we design both an incentive for the energy company to do that through policy, tax credits, whatever, and the structural policy to get the landlords or homeowners to agree to such a program? Wow. (laughs) You're designing a system and a service. Yep. And, uh, 
everything in between. Yeah. And addressing a need. Yeah. Well, have, do you have any thoughts about how to do that? Because <laughs> that's yeah, a there's challenge. Yeah, there's a lot of thoughts, but most of them, unfortunately, are state-centric, right? I want right. to see nationally how we could do this. Yeah, right, because state laws differ. Yep. Now, is this a combo for both of you, or does Ruth have, have her own? Alden definitely has more high-flying ideas than, <laughs> than I do. Um, I guess my feeling for a course like that is, is I feel like a lot of the design courses are very um, ethereal in nature. It's like it's all on paper. You're developing a PowerPoint to say, here's how we would design this or something. I would want to make the class entirely hands-on. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, at the beginning, you would split into teams and together in the course of whatever it is, six or eight weeks, you would design, build, site and sell a solar installation. So you would wow. do the same thing that Alden and I are doing. You, you would have a team that goes out and finds a prospective site. You would have a team that goes out and finds an investor and creates marketing materials to sell them on it or her. Uh, you would have a team that goes out and finds a good local solar installer. And you would have a team that researches your state policy and figures out how to make the paperwork work. And mm -hmm. it really could work that that student team could put together a project, put together the financing and get the solar installed uh, in the course of the project. And I think that's huge because that gives your students that real hands-on concrete pride of accomplishment that there's a piece of solar that existed that wouldn't have existed if I hadn't taken this class. Right. And that's going to lead to those people being inspired for, I mean, that's like solar for life, baby. <laughs> I mean, when I stood on the kid's school and saw a million dollars worth of solar that was there only because I dragged a couple, bunch of parents into it and talked the school into it, that was huge. I mean, I just felt so proud of it and proud to show my kids and, uh, that just really got me hooked on doing it. And so I think if you can give the kids that hands-on concrete, I installed this much solar and it's yeah. making power right now, um, cool. then they'll be inspired for a long time. Well, I'm solar for life. I, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've come up to the, the end of the program and it um, kind of sucks. I'd rather <laughs> continue to talk more <laughs> to you, but um, maybe my last thing for you is like, if, if someone's listening to this show right now and they're kind of intrigued by getting solar on their home or whatever, what advice can you give them to, so that they can easily go and, and get that done? Uh, well, there's <laughs> a, ahead, a lot of sites that, that exist to help you. I mean, Department of Energy has a very nice site to explain renewables. Um, like I said, there's a lot of non-governmental, there's Generation 180 and Solar United Neighbors. There's also one called Energy, Energy Sage that will give you like reviews of right. your installers because you definitely don't want to, if somebody comes to your door to try to sell you solar, that's a bad sign. That's not who you want to go with. There's okay. a lot of scammers out there. <laughs> Good to know. Good so, to know. Um, so I think just doing the research for, for your area, who are the reputable installers and just have them give, come give you a quote. It's just unbelievably easy. Once somebody gives you a quote, they're like, yeah, here's how much it would be. It'd be two days, you know, and you get the tax credit. I mean, just give an installer a call, uh, you know, try to look around in your area for a good one, drive around, find a house with solar panels, talk to the owner and see if they're mm -hmm. happy and who did their <laughs> installation. Well, thanks for that. I mean, uh, solar is dropping in price. I read about it in the news every day. So it seems like it's going to continue to drop over over this next year and the year after. So I'm solar for life. So I just got to get it installed somewhere with my child's school or my house. My house seems to be out of the question at the moment. So I'm, I'm all in for you to helping you guys do that with, with the schools. And if any of the other, uh, my other listeners and the climate design community want to be involved, here's your opportunity to reach out to, to both Ruth and Alden to use your, your skills as a designer to get involved in helping bringing solar on every roof in the u.s absolutely that's great all right well thanks to to both of you for being on the show it's been really educational and i hope it's been educational for those who have heard it um, you're doing great work and i'm honored to have you on the show thanks thank so much you very for much. inviting us thanks for tuning in today to climify 
but don't leave just yet. I've got more goodness for you coming up. Music. As the pandemic has really affected our friends in the performing arts, where they're unable to book shows, tour, or sometimes even get into a recording studio, I thought I'd highlight one at the end of each of our episodes. Since this is a podcast for designers, the musicians featured on each are also designers. Well, I'll turn it over to our artists to explain who they are and the reasons behind their music. I'm Anders Carpenter. My band, The Ocean and Films, released our debut album, Cruel Vestige, just a few months before the pandemic hit. The song you're listening to is the lead-off track on the album. It's called Nothing to Repeat. And it's a song that's very much about wanting to get out of your own head and connect with others, connect with the world, but being held back by fear, regret, and anxiety. The song was written about 10 years ago, and over time, with different production flourishes and arrangements, took its final form on the album. People hear the song these days and think that it was written during the pandemic or about the pandemic, I guess because of its themes of isolation, disconnection, and being stuck inside. So it's interesting to see that the songs we write can take on a new meaning over time and that listeners can find a new way to connect to the music depending on the context, giving the song a prolonged meaning and resonance. If you want to hear the song and others from the album, you can go to theoceanandfilms.com to link to the various streaming sites, or you can buy a vinyl album, which we're also selling on the site. Nothing left to keep 
Thanks for listening to Climify. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To catch all the latest on Climify, you can follow us on Instagram at Climify Podcast. Climify is part of Climate Designers. Learn more at climatedesigners.org slash edu.